Good afternoon, everyone. This is the 66th Fireside Chat. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Eric, if you'd like to start off with your question. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Donna. Um, let me just grab my question. Uh, so it's about changing dysfunctional instincts regarding the male-female relationship. So in previous talks, you explained that our social situation has changed immensely in the last 3,000 years compared to what it was during the rest of our evolutionary history. So there's a lot of old instincts running around in us that aren't as appropriate as they used to be. And as we find them to be dysfunctional, then we need to overcome them and let them go. And then when we do that, we actually change our genes. So we need some big changes in instincts, and most of those are the male-female relationship instincts. Uh, my question is, which instincts regarding the, the male-female relationship specifically should we embrace, and which should we work on changing? And how do you recommend that we change those dysfunctional or undesirable instincts? Yes, our evolution has given us instincts just as all other animals have instincts. And the instincts tend to center around procreation and survival. Those are the two big criteria for evolving successfully in this virtual reality we call our physical universe. So most of our instincts are going to be around those two, you know, those two axes that is survival and, and procreation. Now, you started out, uh, I think, looking a little more at the uh, procreation end of it, but we'll, we'll talk about both of them. And the male-female relationship and the kind of sociology that goes with it, you know, you have psychology and sociology. And the psychology comes from uh, you know, what people think and feel, but the sociology impacts that because we are social animals. And as we gather into groups and have social interactions, then our psychology changes. And when our psychology changes, our sociology changes. Those two things are both interacting with each other to produce kind of who we are. So it's not just our psychology or just our social aspects, but both of those together are a very interactive pair. Okay, and for the last almost 200,000 years, we've been evolving as homo sapiens. Okay, that's a long, long time in which to develop instincts. There hasn't been a lot of change in the psychology or the sociology for that much, up until what um, I could say to be very uh, uh, generous, you know, a thousand years ago, but maybe only 500 years ago, did things actually begin to change dramatically. Changes usually don't happen all at once. They happen over a long, long period of time. So changes have been have been ongoing probably for, you know, maybe a couple of thousand years, but it's been very, very slow. It didn't get to be where the changes were fast enough that we began to trip over them and not know how to, not know how to interact. You know, when they, when they change only by the millennia, we kind of adjust and, and uh, get by and it's not so bad. But when they change over decades, 
then we find ourselves in, in problems. So what primarily uh, transpired was that our original success as a species was based on our ability to um, produce lots of young, lots of offspring, faster than our competition. One of the things that Homo sapiens was best at was creating more Homo sapiens. And we did that better than Neanderthal or any of the other four or five competing hominids you know, at the time. So we outbred all the competition. And then where it was possible, we absorbed what was left. So that's why most of us walking around will have, you know, 1% or a half a percent or 2% of Neanderthal, you know, in our, in our makeup, in our genes. So if you have your DNA tested, you'll find that most of us will have a very, very small percentage of Neanderthal genes in us because we not only outbred our competition, but we then absorbed them. So that uh, their own genetics got so diluted that, like I said, they only make up a tiny percentage of what we have. So Homo sapiens um, dominated by procreating more efficiently. We did that for a couple of reasons. One reason is that we early on discovered the efficiency of specialization, whereas most of our competitors did not. And by that, I mean, most of our competitors, everybody, male and female, pretty much did everything. You know, everybody, it was a more egalitarian society as far as gender went. Everybody did everything. But that's not really very efficient. Um, it's hard to, you know, in the, in the period that we're talking about, were very violent and unfriendly times. Very difficult to live. Lifespans were up and around 35 years, maybe. That's about as long as anybody would survive, or at least that was the average or so. Or so it's, I guess the archaeologists figure that out by looking at bones and they can test kind of how old they were, you know, when, died, when they died and so on. So we specialized where others didn't. And that means more of our offspring survived than our competitors. But we also specialized biologically in the sense that the human, the Homo sapien females, okay, were sexually receptive all the time, whereas the others, more like most animals, only receptive in a in a short period of time during the year. You know, with with uh, dogs, that's what um, maybe every six months. With chimpanzees, which are our closest relative, it's probably in around the same sort of time where the, where the sexual receptiveness comes and goes. And probably that was generated from their own genetics because if there were too many young around, they couldn't be supported. They couldn't be taken care of. They couldn't be fed. So, the biology evolved in a way to keep that from happening.
so there wouldn't be too many young around to take care of. Okay, but again, everybody doing everything was not such a uh, such an effective way. You know, if there's a if there's trouble, if there's war, if there's uh, you know violence going on, then males and females together grabbed up their spears and went out and fought. And if there was you know time around, males and females could take care of young or could forage for food or not. Everybody did pretty much whatever needed to be done. With the Homo sapiens, we specialized in that the women specialized in having and taking care of babies. That was their pretty much full-time job. They didn't have many other responsibilities other than making sure that they had as many babies as possible, which means they could get pregnant very quickly after having the last one because they didn't have to wait six months for the next cycle to come around or a year. So they stayed pregnant most of the time and had multiple children to take care of. And the male specialized in taking care of the female and the children and providing for their needs because their time was fully uh, consumed in just taking care of and raising and making sure the children grew up to the age that they could then reproduce themselves. That's the whole point. You have to have babies, but you have to keep them alive until they can reproduce. And if you get those two things together, then you're going to create a lot of children. Okay, so we have women who took care of babies, basically stayed out of harm's way as much as possible, because if she died, then her children were um, not as likely to make it. So she was very important for their ability to grow up and reproduce later on themselves. So that was kind of the, the instincts that we developed. Men take care of women and children. Women take care of children. Secondarily, women take care of their man. Men take care of the women primarily, and secondarily, they take care of the children. So that was how our instincts worked, and that worked pretty well. Uh, women were protected, which means they didn't just get out and walk around if it was a very violent time. Um, also, because among humanoids of all sorts, not just homo sapiens, numbers counted. The, sci the survivability of our species counted on numbers, how many of us we had. And once we had enough to have multiple tribes and multiple groups, and those groups were fighting with each other, the winners were the ones that had more people. So the ones who could procreate more or otherwise capture or collect more people in their group became, um, uh, what, hard to beat, and they beat everybody else. They were more successful in the grab for resources. If they found somebody else with a smaller group who had a nicer cave than their cave, they'd just take it away from them. They could do that, you see. So having more numbers was important. Since the women are the ones that have the babies, finding a loose woman out walking about, well, you just grab her up and take her home to have babies for your tribe, you see. So 
it was a little dangerous for the ladies to be out walking around in those times because they were very valuable. The men in general are very expendable. The males had the high-risk jobs. The women had the jobs that kept them home, pregnant, and taking care of babies all the time and basically being protected. So they just didn't go out. Everybody didn't do everything. The women stayed more or less in safe space, which was a, a much smaller space than the men ranged in. And the men were to feed them and the children and themselves and house them as well. So that's just the basic of evolution and how we ended up with the instincts we've got. Okay. So our instincts are such that we want to, uh, you know, keep the females pregnant almost all the time that they can be pregnant. More is better when it comes to, to uh, procreation. You know, this is for the first out of that 200,000 years. Now we're talking about 90, 98% of that, you know, almost all of it. This is the way it was. Um, so now we get up to more modern times. Go back 500 years or so at the beginning of maybe the Industrial Revolution, maybe further back than that yet. And now we have the world is not quite such a violent place as it was. Now we're starting to form cities and towns and civilizations. It's not just wandering bands of people. We're starting to build um, infrastructure. And within those collective groups, there is more security. Okay, maybe we build walls around our cities. So there is more security. Well, in that case, then the ladies can get out of the cave and walk around a bit because now they're in a structure with a wall around it. They're not in the cave anymore. And so on that progressed up until today where there is no need for women to stay in a protective space anymore. They can get out and walk around and do pretty much whatever men can do and travel the world or do anything else in relative safety. It's not like somebody's going to grab them up or do anything to them. They, they uh, have the safety to, to uh, function on their own, to go out and work and hold jobs and bring home income and do whatever they need to be self-sufficient. That is a huge change, a very big change in our, uh, you know, with, with our instincts. So we have to turn that corner we have to help those ladies, you know, we, all of us, humanity, help those ladies get out of the cave and be able to walk freely around and do all the things that women are capable of doing, have always been capable of doing, but are, are kind of splitting up the work, kept the women safe and the children safe so that we would grow more women and children more quickly. All right, so that's one big thing. Our culture is different now. So that's a sociological thing, not a psychological thing. Sociology has changed dramatically, and we still have these instincts that we had before. So an interesting thing is that these instincts are part of us. 
as long as they're a part of us, they are very strong influences on our feelings. I mean, that's what an instinct does. It so strongly influences you to do a particular behavior that you almost always do it, whether you're a bird and you're building a nest or you know whatever it is. You have these instincts that just put pressure on you to do things a certain way and to, you know, to build nests or whatever. Okay, so here we have these instincts that put pressure on us and we put pressure on, on the males to, you're in charge, you take care of those females and children. You have to protect them. It's a dangerous place out there. You need to be in charge. You need to know what they're doing, how they're doing it, when they're doing it, where they're doing it, because otherwise you can't protect them. And you're supposed to make sure that they uh, stay pregnant and that they stay well fed. That's your job. You provide, you protect. So we have that, but see, that doesn't really apply that much anymore. They don't need that much protection. They can feed themselves, you see, and they have housekeepers that come in and daycare that takes care of children. And we just have all sorts of other things that, that make that not necessary anymore. But yet you still have these pressures to do those things, to feel that way. And same with the females. They have a sense of, of, you know, when they start uh, to get into their 20s, they start having a, a thing that's called uh, their clocks going off. You know, they feel like they need to pair up. They need to find a mate. They need to have pregnant, to get pregnant and, and have a family. They have a lot of instincts pushing them in that direction. Well, that's not so necessary anymore. They could do that, but that's not a matter of survival like it was, you know, thousands of years ago. So they have certain things about raising the children, taking care of the children, being there for the children. And then secondly, you know, taking care of husband. Husband takes care of wife primarily and secondarily takes care of children. So we're, we have those instincts. They don't apply as much now as they did. But the thing with instincts are is they give you a very heavy-handed demand or push that you do and be according to those instincts. It's hard just walking away from instincts. And if you do things or have attitudes that are crosswise to your instincts, which I mean is just, you know, they are incompatible with your instincts. They're in the opposite direction that your instincts are trying to push you. Then you will feel bad. You will feel unsatisfied. You will feel in your mind somewhere that you're not doing it right, that there's a problem. In other words, it'll drive you crazy. You'll keep having these doubts, these issues that you're not quite right. Life isn't quite right. You can't quite find satisfaction anywhere because satisfaction partly is when those instincts are happy and humming, you know, successful in getting you to do what it is you need to do. When you're crosswise to those instincts, you constantly have this sense of stress, of not doing it right, not being right, something's wrong here. But you go do those things that are counter to your instincts anyway, and it's hard to find peace. It's hard to find tranquility.
It's hard to find quiet in a world where you are crosswise to your instincts because internally you feel wrong, or at least I should say not right. Something isn't quite right here. This relationship isn't quite right. There's something about my relationship that just doesn't feel satisfying. It isn't the way I thought it would be. And that's why, because you're crossways to instincts. You get these big, these strong feelings saying, you need to do this. You need to be this way. And when you're not that way, then it makes you neurotic. That'd be another term for the same thing. It gives you stress, makes you difficult to find satisfaction with yourself. And not liking yourself, being dissatisfied with yourself is the root of almost all other mental issues, emotional issues. So that's kind of the problem and, and why we have it. So what we need to do is to stay in line with our instincts as best we can, but still take advantage of all the opportunities that we have now that we didn't have, you know, 10,000 years ago. Okay. So we need to do both, but we need to be careful how we try to push our instincts into a new space. If we just try to pull them, bully them into a new space by denying them, to hell with the instincts. They're wrong. I'm right. I'm just going to you know, do the opposite and whatever, that will make us neurotic. That will make us feel dissatisfied with ourselves. So we have to understand, okay, I've got these instincts and I understand those feelings. I accept those feelings. That's a part of me. And now I'm going to go do something a little different. That's different than just saying those instincts don't exist. The one is denial and the other is, is accepting working with them, exercising them as much as you can. Okay, so if one of the things that we are to do as human beings is to, is to uh, stay, you know, stay pregnant as often as possible, so we have strong urges to have sex. That's part of our instincts. Not just once every six months, when your female comes into heat, you know, like if you were a, a canine, but just to have sex all the time. That's part of our instincts, both males and females. Okay, so if that's a part that your life allows you to, you know, to, uh, to do, and if that doesn't get in the way of all those other things you'd like to do, like the female having a job or, you know, becoming a brain surgeon or, whatever else you might want to do or whatever you might, you know, whatever the man might want to do. The man might want to stay home and take care of children. That's becoming more and more acceptable. There's has a lot of advantages in that, you see. So as long as you can keep parallel as opposed to crosswise or, or perpendicular to your instincts, do so in as many ways as you can. Stay aligned with them. Work them, let them be, you know, let them, let them urge you, follow those urges. That's good. Where they squeeze you, 
Maybe you don't want to stay home with your children. Maybe you'd rather go out and do something else and you pay somebody to take care of your children. Well, if that's a choice you make, you're fine as a woman. That's going to make you feel a little, you know, you're going to be pushed and pulled. There's a part of you that's saying, stay home, take care of your kids. That's your instincts. There's another part of you saying, well, I really would rather go out and work or do something else. It's more fulfilling. Exercise is my mind. Uh, you know, it's more my style. Well, then realize that you're doing that. That's counter to your instincts and that that's okay. Accept that too. But there's a big difference between going into it, knowing and accepting it and trying to deny it and block it out. So that's how we make the turn. We go along with our instincts as much as we can and feed them, you know, in as much as that works with our lifestyle and who we are. And at the same time, when we decide to work against them, we realize there's going to be that little mind in there saying, "Uh, -uh, you're not doing it right. You're not, you know, you're not being a good mother. You're not being a good father. You know, you're not your relationship isn't good. You only had sex, you know, once this week or once this month. And that's not good because you're not making babies. You know, we have instincts that want us to do that. So instincts don't mind whether you use birth control or not. You see, they're not that specific. So even though you're not actually making babies because you have birth control, the instincts just as happy. As long as you're having sex, they figure everything's fine. Birth control is outside of their understanding. Their understanding is just basically, you know, action sexual based. So that's the deal. Try to try to live in consonance with your instincts as much as you can. Where it no longer fits because our sociology has changed dramatically then realize that you are running against them. There is going to be that nagging little self-doubt that you're doing it right. Accept that and go on. Don't let it drive you nuts. Don't let it make you go into a depression or something. Yeah, You say, yeah, I know where that's coming from. I know why I feel that thing. But I'm choosing to get out in the world and do things because it's not a scary place anymore. I can do that. And I should be able to do that. Women should be able to go out and do and be anything that they can do and be. But they're going to have some issues with dealing with their instincts. But if they do it up front, not a problem. If they just press it down, all right, I've got this bad feeling, but I'm just going to press it down into my subconscious and not deal with it. Now it will start to eat at them and end up being some kind of an emotional problem, feeding lack of, you know, self-worth and that sort of thing. Whereas if they do it up front and accept it, then it doesn't become, you know, a medical issue. It doesn't become a problem. It's just something they deal with. So that's how we change our instincts. We just put pressure on our genetics by our choices and our attitudes, and eventually they'll change. Now, the, the news isn't as bad as it sounds like. All right, we're, we're 200,000 years cre- creating these instincts. You know, is it going to take another 200,000 years to get rid of them? 
No, it won't. The instincts can change probably over two, three, four generations. But only if we intentionally, and by that intentionally, we have the intent that we are going to, we are going to change. We are going to use that social freedom that we've got now. And we're going to, we're going to be okay with that little nag we have that says we're not doing it right. We're going to accept that too. We're not going to hide it. We're going to accept it. So if we do that, then we can change those instincts. Not quickly. It'll take several generations. Like I say, maybe two, three, could be in four, but it's not going to take thousands of years. Our genetics are pretty malleable. We can change them with, with our intent. But you see, if what you do is deny them, now you don't have an intent to change them. You have an intent for them not to exist. Well, that doesn't make them go away. It just makes you neurotic. You see, that's the key idea. Do it mindfully. And accept the, the nag that you're going to get because of it. So that's kind of the, the idea about, about sexuality and genetics and instincts. Uh, we have the same things with, with, um, you know, with, with safety. You know, we have procreation, but we also have survival. So there's some survival issues that, that poke at us some now that didn't, um, you know, we get, we get that nagging sometimes that we didn't get before. And that is in the, in the role mainly for the males who are supposed to take care of that family. And when the family doesn't need them to take care of them in that way, they don't, the family doesn't need that much protection, then males will feel a certain amount of emptiness or not doing it right or not really being valued in the sense that because they're the protector. So they have to change their own mindset that, okay, that kind of protection isn't necessary anymore. There's not wild bands of people trying to, you know, take each other's caves. It's not like that anymore. There's enough resources for most of us. We don't have to fight and scrape and defend everything that we have. So letting that go and not having to be in charge and make sure that, you know, what everybody's doing and when they're doing it and how they're doing it so you can protect them, that kind of, of um, thing, again, we need to back off of some of that protection and say it's not necessary anymore. And we have to do that willfully and mindfully, not just stuff it and deny it. So those are the those are the things. So right now, males and females are in a transition as far as gender relationships, because both are in a change of flux, females more than males. The male change is a little more of a subtle change. The females is a very dramatic change. So those changes have changed the dynamics between male and female a whole lot. And the changes have to be made together. It's not like, you know, females can go out and make these uh, uh, changes to their, to their instincts or deal with it, and men don't. Or men do and women don't. They have to, males and females have to do this together. They have to make this turn from 
ancient times to modern times by modifying instincts. And you'll probably never get rid of all of that instinct. It's probably just a lot of it is going to be just a part of being a homo sapien. But you can make that really, really strong push or drive into something that isn't quite so invasive with your intent. In other words, we can we can adjust it. We can modify it. I don't know that we'll get rid of it because who knows? We may need it. You know, if we went into one of these uh, big uh, calamity scenarios where, uh, you know, what nuclear war or, or uh, you know, a rogue virus or, you know, whatever else, global warming, and we end up uh, losing most of our culture and civilization and end up back where we were 500 years ago, well, we're going to need some of those instincts again. They're going to be critical to our survival as a species. So the species doesn't want to offload them entirely. It just wants to readjust them to fit where we are now. So that's that's kind of the male-female thing and instincts. And males and females are now more unsure of who they are you know, and, and how they relate to each other than probably any time in the last 200,000 years or <laughs> more. We're more confused about what gender means and and what's appropriate in the male-female interaction and, and what's appropriate and what's satisfying and what's not. That has all kind of been stirred up and it's, it's uh, we, we are less sure of ourselves in the area of gender and gender roles today than probably we have ever been. So that's basically what that's all about and, and what you do about it. So I'm, I'm being kind of vague in some places because it's, you know, as far as every individual, there's, a, there's only an individual answer. You know, if you talk to a particular couple or a particular individual, then everyone's unique here. So I'm trying to stay vague and talk about people in general, not about all the various kinds of people we have in particular. That would take too long yeah, to do that. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It answers it very well. Thank you, Tom. Caroline is next. Okay. So I wanted to know um, how confident you are in your nutritional advice. Like, to what extent do you feel that the foundation for your nutritional advice is solid? Like, I'm asking this because nutrition is a very complex and controversial topic. And I'm curious to what extent you feel confident in the terms um, you are in, in the answers you found in terms of nutrition and health and the diet that you follow yourself. Well, I'm very, very confident in it as far as it applies to me. As far as it applies to, you know, everybody else, well, not so much because I've come to my conclusions. And for those of you who don't know, my conclusions are mostly I am vegan. Um, and I'm a vegan that doesn't eat a lot of carbohydrates. So, uh, so take away all the bread, take away the rice, take away the potatoes, take away all of the real starchy things and uh, most of the grain and 
take away all the sugars and sweeteners and what's left, that's what I eat. Okay, so we throw away all the meat and the, you know, but all throw out all the chemicals, throw out all the uh, uh, you know, fillers and artificial colors and flavors and get rid of all of that junk. And pretty much that's what I eat. Now, for most people, if you go into your kitchen and your pantry and you throw out all the things that I just mentioned to throw out, your shelves would all be bare. There wouldn't be anything left. You'd starve. You know, so it takes a while to get used to a diet like that. So I don't necessarily say everybody should, should copy what I do. But for me, that works really well. I have more energy. I have more, uh, um, I don't know, good health than most people my age. And I do really well with that sort of diet. Now, I don't think that everybody needs to have exactly the same diet. We're all very much individuals. And though we're all homo sapiens, we come from a very long, uh, you know, varied uh, assortment of, of uh, body types and attitude types and all sorts of other things which would affect that. So that's just that's just me. That works really good for me. I also find as I don't need, and part of that's my age, I don't need as much food as I used to. I don't have to eat nearly as much. I was one of these people that, uh, you know, as a, oh, I don't know, anywhere probably from about, you know, 14 or 15 up through probably, uh, you know, 50. I could eat as much in a meal at three people, three normal people, you know, could have eaten. You know, I could eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, and I still didn't gain a whole lot of weight. But I could easily do three and four thousand calories. I was a teenager, you know, three and four thousand calories a day was kind of normal. So now that's not the case. Now I eat probably half as much as what most people eat in a day. So things change, you know, it has to do with age. It has to do with how active you are. You know, I do exercising five days a week. I do some sort of exercise. Uh, routines. So, you know, I don't find that I miss anything. You know, I don't find there's not any part of my health that doesn't work. You know, people will say, oh, if you're a vegetarian, you don't get enough B12. Well, I seem to get plenty of B12. I don't have any of those issues. You know, when I had a, my last time, I had a physical. That's one of the things they did. They took blood and, uh, they did tests on vitamins and deficiencies and what you had and what you didn't have. And I didn't have any problems at all with any of that. Um, you know, the, our culture says that you should eat something like 80 to 100, you know, grams of protein. And I find that's just way, way, way more protein than I think probably anybody needs. I think that's good advertising by the meat lobby. Uh, I, I would think that 20 grams is probably plenty, and often I don't get that much. Yet I lift weights three times a week. I don't have any problems with not getting enough protein. There's plenty of sources of protein that are plant-based. 
So anyway, my diet. So I, it, my diet really works well for me. And uh, you know, I'm I'm 75, and I see people all the time out in the world who are 75 and they have walkers, you know, and they have somebody on each arm, you know, helping him, helping them get around and they have canes and uh, they don't look like they could walk a hundred yards, you know, if they had to, they're just not healthy. I'm doing pretty well for an old guy as far as physically goes. And I attribute, attribute most of that to the way I eat and to the fact that I exercise. And what did it take you to adjust adjust to that diet? Is it like, um, do you think you had an advantage because you have like a higher quality of consciousness than most people? I didn't find it all that hard to adjust to things. It's probably just me and the way I am. And I don't know, maybe uh, it has to do with being a technical type, you know, a physicist. But generally, if I decide that something is good or not good, if I make that decision and make that choice, that's the end of it. I don't, I don't uh, have problems with it. You know, I've never had problems with fasting. I've never had problems with getting rid of sugar. If I decide that sugar is going to leave my diet because when I was going out to the lab, it, it was causing problems with my focus and, and being able to stay in a good data state, And I just stop. And any little uh, twinges later on of wanting sweets, I just notice it and say no and go on. So I don't have a lot of trouble um, doing things like that. And I think partly that's just me and, and, my, and my personality. Other people don't seem to do that. Many other people, you know, if it doesn't feel good, they want something or whatever, that becomes a really big deal. And I think it's a matter of just being committed to the changes that you want. If you're really committed to them, then you won't have any withdrawals. And that goes even from, you know, with nicotine or other things. If you're really committed to stopping smoking, you just won't have any withdrawals. You'll just stop. And the urge to smoke will be an urge that will remind you that you don't want to do that. And it's only when you're not fully committed and you kind of would like to quit because you know that'd be a good thing, but you still want to do it anyway because you still have the habit and you're not really committed to it. That's when you have, you know, two years worth of withdrawals and you constantly, you know, want to eat the sugar or smoke a cigarette or do something because you're not fully committed. So that I think is more my personality than anything else. Once I commit, then there isn't any more issue about whether you're going to do it or not. You just don't. And uh, eventually the, the need goes away pretty quickly. So I'd say if you want to change your diet, just really decide that you want to do it and that you're going to do it, and there isn't anything that's going to keep you from doing it, certainly not yourself, and do it and see where it goes. In all of my diet, I've gotten to experimentally, like the sugar. All I knew at the lab is that my focus sometimes was good, sometimes was bad. Sometimes I could you know, really work well and get a lot done, and sometimes my mind was scattered and it was all over the place. So I'm a scientist. I wanted to know why. So I started keeping track of everything I did, you know, how much sleep I got, what did I eat, 
And I finally, over years, decided that it was the sugar was the main contributor to the problem. And that just took a while. So then I'd go off the sugar and see how that worked. And six months later, I'd say, well, okay, what if I go back onto the sugar? How does that work? And I found out how that worked. You know, I started getting fuzzy again. So it's all just trial and error. See how it works for you. I'm a, I'm a unique person just like everybody else is a unique person. What works for me may not work for you. May not be, may not suit you. But in any case, try things. See if they work. If they don't, leave them alone. Try something else. You know, if you want to exercise and just really can't find the time because it always on the bottom of your priority list, so it always slips off the bottom when other things come and get in front of it, then that's because you're not committed. If you want to exercise, then set a time, set a place, set an exercise, and just do it. And when that other thing comes in and says, oh, no, you have to do this now. You know, there's an emergency here. You have to do that. You'll have to do your exercise later. You just say, no, this is my time for exercise. Or if it is emergency that you can't, whatever, you'll say, well, I'll come back. I'll do it later. So there you are at midnight doing your exercises because that's the only time you were able to do them. But you do them at midnight when everything else is done. You see? So that's commitment. You have to do them if you decide to do them. Now, you can't be terribly inflexible. You have to adjust, and that's okay. You know, sometimes I don't do my exercises. I don't do them when I'm off giving talks some places, when I'm traveling. I just, I don't try to keep them going on while I'm traveling. It's just, you know, too big a hassle. So I let them go then, but then I take them back up again as soon as I get back. So I let them go um, now and again, but I keep the priority up there and I don't let things get in front because exercise is a priority for me. I, I was at a gym once. I don't go to gyms anymore, but I was at a gym once and there was an old guy in there. He was probably, you know, at the time I was probably in my uh, late 60s and he was probably in his late 70s, almost 80. And he said, you know why I come here every every week? And I said, well, no, why do you come here every week? And he says, I come in here every week so I can come in here next week. That's why. So he comes in every week so he'll be able to come in the next week. And as long as he keeps that attitude, you know, I'm lifting these weights so that I'll be able to lift them tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next week after that. And as long as I keep lifting them, I'll be able to lift them. As soon as I quit and come back six months later after I quit, I won't be able to do it anymore. So that was his advice. And I thought that was pretty good advice. Okay, thank you. I have a second question. Um, so let's say that... Um, I decide to switch my avatar with um, with another person, like Eric. So I log off my avatar, and I log to onto his avatar, and he logs onto mine. So what aspects um, of me will change, and what will remain the same? Like, will I lose all of the memories that belong to the old avatar and obtain the memories of the new avatar instead, or will I retain the memories of the old avatar? 
since uh, memory is stored in the consciousness? And what char characteristics such as our skills, intelligence, personality, sexual orientation, paranormal abilities, and so on? <laughs> well, that's a rather that's a rather a wild. Uh hypothetical question that you and Eric are going to switch avatars and maybe in a movie that takes place, you know, Hollywood can do that. But I suspect that's not something that's really going to be able to happen to you two. So the question is, is kind of off the wall, but I can tell you a few things that you can do. You can for some period of time, usually short periods of time, You can see the world through somebody else's eyes. You can feel other people's feelings. It's not that you become them. You just tune in to them and you pick up those feelings. So you can look through somebody else's eyes and see what they're, they're seeing. You can taste what they're tasting. You can basically tap into their sense data and The interpretation you give to that sense data, though, is your own. Okay, so you tap into the sense data, but the interpretation is your own. You don't necessarily get the interpretation that they get of the same data. So that makes it a little difference because, yes, the interpretation and the memory and the quality all go with the consciousness, not with the avatar. So you can do some things like that, but to uh, do a, you know, an actual switch, that's not going to happen. You're not going to switch, but you can experience how other people feel. You can experience their emotions, how they feel. You can get a sense of that, but usually it's just short periods of time. Then you come back to being yourself. And to do that, You have to collect that data. Really, you're collecting that data from the database or you're collecting it directly from their their own consciousness. So that you can do, but you're not going to. Now, again, I'm talking in the in the margins here, you know, sometimes people do, you know, a consciousness will switch out an avatar. It's not that that's impossible. But for two people to switch, I've never actually heard that that ever happened. But I have known where a person wanted out, didn't want to continue on living, but didn't want to commit suicide. And if they have some some connection to the to the intuitive world, then they can maybe arrange for that to happen, where they can switch and somebody else can come in and and, and uh, work out the rest of their life. That's a possibility doesn't happen often. It's way, way out there in the margins, but it can happen. Sometimes you can have, you know, two uh, consciousnesses in a, in, a, in a body. That happens is, again, way, way out in the margins. And the only instances of that that I personally know of are where the two consciousnesses were very, very close to begin with. One dies, but the relationship continues because the other who still had an avatar welcomed the other one in and they both live in there together. So those kinds of things can happen. The idea that some 
some uh, boogeyman out of the you know out of uh, the the great beyond is going to uh, jump into your body and take over. That's mostly only happens in Hollywood and grade B movies. Like the the one incident you talked about, right? I think it was um, a lady and her mom. I mm -hmm. think that as well. But like, what remain like what remains of the person that comes into the other person's avatar? Like, does she still have like their memories and their yes? And their have all their have all their memories, all their personality. They have everything. They just sharing an avatar. Is that one dominant part, or is this like? completely shared. No, they're just shared. They're just shared. Now, things have to be done, you know, like somebody has to decide whether they're going to get on a bus and go shopping or lie down and take a nap. So it has to be somebody you're very compatible with. You have to work together. So if two people are sharing like that and one of them says, I'd like to take a nap and the other says, well, I want to go shopping, you know, and then they get in a fight about it, that wouldn't be so good. Or if one of them dominated all the time and said it always has to be my way, that wouldn't be so good. So this needs to, it only works well if there's such compatibility going on and such giving and caring that they don't have the, the big ego, the big, you know, uh, self-centeredness, because then it won't work. So in this case, there was, you know, unconditional love between them. So there was no, there's never any conflict with unconditional love. You don't have conflicts. So otherwise, yes, you'd end up with conflicts because each retains their own consciousness. They just now, and you have to get the system to agree to that because now the system feeds them both that data stream. So it's not something you just do. That's why boogeymen's from the great beyond don't just jump in because you can't do that sort of thing without the system being a part of it. <laughs>